Hey, what is going on? Eric Bakke, your host of the Look Great Naked podcast. And today I sit down with my friend, fantastic coach and my personal coach, Blake West, who you can find over on Instagram at blakewest 20 to. Blake works for Maximum Health and Performance, and today we break down the six keys to maximizing health and performance. On this podcast, we talk about the specific detriments of long-term dieting and why stress management is such an important component to be able to look great naked without living in the gym. Going a little bit further, we dig into some of the important components in terms of gut health, blood work, and some of the key training concepts and nutrition protocols that you need to follow, not only to look your best, but to also optimize your health and overall development. Blake is an incredible source of wisdom, so I highly recommend that you follow him over on social media. Now, if you are getting value directly from this podcast or any of the other podcasts on the Look Right Naked podcast platform, please share your favorite episode, tag me at Bach Performance over on Instagram, and I will send over one of my favorite supplements from Legion Athletics directly to one winner. That's it. Let's jump into today's show. I like to do a little bit, still like one or two days. This guy got so many things I'm doing on the marketing side. I know for me, like our check-ins, I keep wanting to bump them earlier and earlier and earlier because there's always people that are dragging behind. Yeah, always. With uh, the amount that we have. And so like first it was Fridays and it was like, okay, now like we bumped it back to Thursdays and we have a policy now. I'm like, if you don't have it done by, let's say Saturday at 10 a.m., like I'm not going to respond to anything until Monday. And it might yep. be Monday afternoon. Yeah. Uh, but even then, I'm going to... Just because my role is changing so much as the business grows, I'm going to be like, if I don't have it by end of business Friday, like, I'm sorry. Because I, I got to have the headspace. The more I get into this stuff, you got to create those boundaries. If not, you're going to lose your mind. You got to create your own or you got to protect your own mental energy. Otherwise, you'll lose it very fast. You know, the thing I learned is if you don't protect your time, nobody else will. No. And especially with something like coaching, I think anything where it's very much service-based and you have people who are opening up to you and, you know, trying to optimize health, performance, cognitive, whatever it is, that there's such a huge allostatic stress load that really comes in that you don't even realize that you're stressed. But sometimes the stuff you hear as a coach, I mean, you got people pouring their heart onto you. You know, I've had people tell me stuff that they can't tell anybody else that they should be telling, you know, the police, whatever it is. While I'm honored to be able to be there for people with some of that stuff, I know that I realize a lot of coaches do not come prepared with it. And a lot of coaches are inherently type A. And so they just kind of white knuckle through that same stress until they get to a point where it's like, wow, this stuff is really weighing on me. And a lot of coaches actually, I think, end up leaving the industry because they just get so burnt out and their their own stress management isn't optimized given everything that they have going on. A hundred percent. I noticed that as I go to, it's like every, every single person that you work with has their own energy that they give off. And the coaches, one of the coaches jobs is to create those boundaries and protect that. Cause I've noticed over time, you let's say we let one client's energy kind of rub off, rub off on us. doesn't really seem like too big of a deal, but when you're, when you have, you know, a big roster of clients and you're talking to several different individuals in one day, that one person's energy rubbing off on you you may transition that to the next check-in and the next client that you talk to. So it's just, that's why, man, I'm really careful now with the the circle and the roster that I have. That energy just doesn't affect the coach and that one person. It's like, it, it affects the entire circle one way, or, one way or another, indirectly. It does. And you know, that's one thing that I talk consistently with a lot of my clients on. And 
this can be difficult, but are the people around you, are they supportive of the things that you want to do? Or is there a lot of negative energy, especially this time of year when we're talking about holidays, people are seeing a lot of people that maybe they don't, you know, you've got maybe that awkward uncle where there's always a difficult conversation at the table that half the people don't agree with and shit hits the fan. But, you know, crafting that social circle is so crucial, just it, it, not only just having like the support of people who are going to be supportive and aligned with the things that you are looking to do, you know, for your health, for your body, for whatever it is, but protecting your own energy because we are the quality of the five people that we spend our most time with. And when that quality really tends to go down, whether it's from a, a work environment, a family environment, and we can't show up as the best version of ourselves, ultimately, that's one of the most unhealthy things that we can do, especially when we feel that incongruency and that misalignment with our actions and the things that we are putting forward. A hundred percent. Man, I was going down a rabbit hole with this with someone the other day. And the deeper that I started to think into it, the just the deeper I kept going. And I think a lot of it, even with, you know, several of the clients that I have, a lot of that stuff comes from past traumas and, you know, kind of creates this subconscious way that they just you know, respond to things now and a lot of like stress resiliency and, you know, managing all that. We know how important that is for physique enhancement or, you know, health is protecting yourself from your own subconscious that's just wired that way. Because, you know, like one thing goes wrong. Let's say, you know, you wake up and something happens. We can't control that, but we can control how do we how we respond to that. So if that subconscious is wired to think this is a negative thing, then you start attracting more of that the rest of your day. So a lot of that we can always talk about do like meditation, yoga, manage stress. But how can we actually start rewiring the way that our subconscious works, the way that we just respond to those situations? I think there's a lot to be said. And that's a lot of inner and deep work that's not necessarily, you know, within my scope by any means. Other professionals are a little bit better at that. But I think there's a lot to be said there in regards to actually being able to manage that stress. It's just being able to respond a little bit differently and rewire that subconscious. Yeah, I see that quite a bit where it's this is I have something coming up with a with a check-in message that I'm sending this week. But it's this idea that I'll get a message from somebody. They're like, I fucked up on my diet. And then they beat themselves up over it. And then it's a whole week, you know? And what I always try to tell people is like, you didn't fuck up. Like you're a human being. Like, I don't know anybody who's been 100% perfect with a diet, like prepping for a shoot, prepping for anything. Like there's always a slip up to some extent. And even mm -hmm. people who are the most dedicated in the world to it, who literally might be making money from the physique that they have, you know? And so... If you are somebody who's working 40 plus hours a week, you've got a family and all these different things, you slipping up and having dessert when it wasn't on plan. Listen, you're human. You're not a robot. But where people really get into issues with stuff like that, it's it's not that they went off plan. It's like the mental construct that they have directly around it, that it's like this huge mistake. And it's an indication of who they are as a person yes. and like the quality of the person that they are. And I find so many people get stuck in this and then it becomes that slippery slope. It's ah, messed up again, ah, messed up again. And then they start to identify as I just can't. I'm a person who can't stick to a healthy protocol because they attach their identity directly to that one particular action, no matter how big or small it is. And that's yep. where people get stuck, I think, in a lot of vicious kind of diet cycles. Yeah, I saw uh, something funny on social media the other day. It was it was related to that. It was like, you know, people mess up one time and then they're just like, oh, kind of F it. Like I'll pick up next week or next Monday. It's like, well, if you, if you doze off at night and forget to brush your teeth one night, are you just going to wait till the new year to start brushing your teeth? You know, one of those <laughs> things to where like it happened and we just, you know, we just got to move on. And that's 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 the thing about over the holidays, kind of a, a good season to relate that to. It's like Christmas is just one day. Thanksgiving's just one day. You know, New Year's Eve is just one day 
that's three days out of the year. And you see a lot of people around this time of year to where the whole Thanksgiving through New Year's Day is just chaos. And they just they just kind of it's just a toss up. And they're just kind of like F it. When in reality, it's like, those are just one one day at a time that's never going to derail you yeah i think it's such a like an important concept and i always relate it back to being an athlete growing up and you were an athlete growing up as well right you played some sports yeah correct i played baseball growing up yep yeah and so you make a bad play it happens maybe an error whatever the case and you can't let that one error dictate the way you play the rest of the game otherwise you're screwed right like i was a defensive back and so when you're a defensive back you're on an island if you mess up everybody sees it it's a big play And especially as a short white dude, I'm like, man, I like, (laughs) I've got to have a little bit more energy out here. And like, overall, one of the most important concepts I learned directly from sports is like, you can't let one bad play dictate the way you have the rest of the game. Like you have to wipe the slate clean. You just got to get back into it because it's going to happen. It's just, you know, the best players at every, every sport miss free throws. They miss a pass, whatever it is. Yeah, it's inevitable. I think baseball too, man, it's one of the most frustrating because you look at, you know, you get on base three out of 10 times. That's a really good batting average. So you're failing so much more than you're succeeding. So you really have to have that short-term memory with stuff. That taught me a lot. Um, You said you were a defensive back. I was a shortstop too. So if I were supposed to be the best athlete on the team. So if you mess up, everyone's kind of all eyes on you. But um, I think that's a really good thing to look at comparing it to sports it's like you know you fail more times usually in a sport like baseball than you succeed if you have this long-term memory and you let that beat you up man you're in for a long you're in for a roller coaster you're in for a long long row no doubt have you read the book the psychology of money by morgan housel uh-uh no all right so without going into like the entire book it, it's very interesting that it breaks down like the way that money or that people think about money belief patterns building wealth losing wealth And this concept, one that he talks about is people are wrong most of the time when it comes to betting on stocks, investments, investment banking, whatever it is. And in fact, if you look at somebody like, you know, Warren Buffett or the late Charlie Munger, the vast majority of their profiles are decidedly average. The fact is they've just been at it for a really long time and they've had like four or five big winners that just went up 100x, right? And that makes up 1% of the total transactions that they made in their portfolio, yet it makes up, what, $83 billion worth of wealth, right? And so like that interesting concept in finance, I think is so interesting. Um, I see it in business as well, when a lot of people are scared to try something new and without the foresight that like, ultimately most businesses do fail. They go out of business, even like Fortune 500 companies. Um, And most products launched by most big companies go completely belly up. Amazon Fire Phone lost billions of dollars for Amazon. And Jeff Bezos' reaction, what was it? It was awesome. We're going to have an even bigger failure next time. And it's because they have something else like Amazon Web Services or Amazon Prime that just makes so much money that they can obviously like fail at these different things. But I think the overall idea is like failure is going to come one way or the other. And it's not attaching your mindset to like missing a meal, missing a workout, whatever that didn't go perfect. It's understanding that that's part of the game. The only way to win the game, so to speak, is to keep playing the game. Yeah. And And that's ultimately what it comes down to. You're going to keep failing too. Failure is just a, I mean, it's just part of the freaking process. And I always tell people to, you never really fail unless you just completely quit. You might've screwed up and learned your lesson, but is it really failure if you continue to go and, you know, a year down the road, six months down the road, you're picking back up where you left off. But man, especially in this industry, I'm sure you, you know, too, it's, 
you're going to have up and down months. I mean, you may have three really bad months to where you just want to kind of throw in the towel with things, but then you'll have that one month to where you make up for all of that. And, you know, it's, it's a roller coaster and it's not for everybody. That's really the case. It really is. It's building that resilience and that, that overall mindset. One thing I want to dig into, I guess a, a category of topics I want to dig into a little bit more. I think we hit on kind of some of the stress and mindset components already, but really how to maximize health and performance. Because in the fitness industry, obviously we see there are like so many segments where it's like some people are all performance, some people are all you know health, some people are all purely building muscle, losing body fat. And I think what happens is people put blinders on and don't understand the correlations between all of these different things. And I think one of the biggest issues that we see is people sacrificing, maybe unknowingly sacrificing maybe what some of their physique goals or what some of their performance goals are for their health, which ultimately prevents them from reaching those goals because there's such a long time frame when it comes to being able to optimally build your body, build whatever physical quality that you're looking for. And so... I would like to talk like, what are some of the foundational things that you look for? Because you take a very health first approach when it comes to working with your clients and when it comes to helping people get into incredible shape. Yeah. And you bring up a good point. So I think in the industry too, there's a lot of people who kind of niche down and not that that's necessarily a bad thing by any means, but you'll see a lot of people who are just physique coaches or who are just, who are just labeling themselves as health coaches or functional health coaches. However, uh, they mesh. And if you don't have one, you can't really have the other. And that's where, you know, maybe you can get someone in really good shape. But what does the after after photo look like? Did you sacrifice their health to get there? Because if you did, it's going to be very, very noticeable, maybe not three months down the road, maybe not even six months down the road. But I promise you at some point, if you did it wrong, and you didn't have the support in when maybe you needed it, there's going to be backlash. And then too, it's like, you know, if you if you have the ability, you get someone in really good shape, you should know how to bring them back to a good health position. Because I mean, you know, like dieting for an extreme amount of time for like a photo shoot or contest prep, whatever it is, it's not healthy at the end of the day. Some people will make that sacrifice. And that's okay, as long as whoever's coaching them knows how to bring them back to homeostasis after the fact. But I mean, just some as far as like, you know, just some prerequisites thing to look, things that we track on a daily basis, things like your waking heart rate. Some people never even look at that. You know, your your blood pressure, what's your sleep look like? What's your digestion look like? What's your blood glucose look like? How are we actually partitioning these nutrients that we're eating? Uh, you know, what's, what's going on outside of what we have in place from a stress perspective? How's your home life? What's your work schedule look like? All of that is in that circle of health. Health is so much more than just what I eat, what I, you know, how much I work out throughout the week. Health is what you do from the time you wake up to the time you go to bed. And I think everyone gets lost in the fact that, well, it's just, it's just what I eat. Well, I've seen a lot of people eat very healthy and be a shit show from a health perspective because of all of these outside variables that are playing a role. So I think a lot of times that's, that gets kind of lost. Yeah. Definitely agree with that. You know, it's again, we talked a little bit about some like the emotional components of it. And what I see, and even my personal experience, somebody's 34 now is like, I would white knuckle so many things and just blast, just straight blast or whatever stress that there is. I'm very type A, business owner, own multiple businesses. Like, I'm just like, line of stuff in front of me, give me, you know, 600 milligrams of caffeine and just watch me go. But eventually you learn that stuff like that doesn't always suit your health and the same operating systems have long-term biological costs. Like a concept I like is like, what is a biological cost of your training or your diet or any one of these components? And a lot of people will do really well for a certain number of years with their health, with their physique, with their performance. And then all of a sudden 
just kind of hit a breaking point, whether they're not physiologically optimized as resilient as they were previously, um, just due to getting a little bit older and some of these compounding stress variables. And all of a sudden, what was working before isn't, and they feel lost. And one of the biggest things that I see, and I would like you to elaborate on this, is like, what are some of the dangers that you see of prolonged dieting? Um, I'm sure you see a lot of people come in where they've maybe successfully or unsuccessfully, you know, followed some fairly aggressive diets and all of a sudden their body's not responding to anything. And yeah. maybe they're eating what should be a calorie deficit, but the scale's not dropping and they don't know what to do. Yeah. Um, so dieting, and we kind of go back to the stress component. Dieting's a stressor. I mean, being in a caloric deficit's a stressor on your body. So anytime that I have someone that I know is going to go into an environment of extreme dieting, because you do do that whenever athletes do that, you know, you're pre again, kind of going back to the example of you're prepping for a photo shoot, you're prepping for a contest, you are going to go through some extremes. I will never take someone into that environment. If we aren't checking the, that's kind of my, my prerequisite to that kind of the same questions I, we just talked about. How's your home life? How's finances? How's work? You know, what's your schedule? Like how's sleep? If we don't have all those checked off, we're not going into that environment. Check those off first. Okay. Then we go into that. Um, things that I see often coming on the other side of that. And you see it more. We're lucky. Me and you, Eric, is that males are more resilient to stress. Now we're not, you know, we're not unbreakable by any means. And I'm sure we both ran into cases to where you're like, Hey, I need to pull back. You know, things just don't feel right, but we are more resilient. There's more moving parts with females and they push that threshold for too long. And you see it often. They'll, they'll even a lot of times they'll, they'll cause themselves GI issues because it's just too much stress on the system. They'll, you'll see autoimmunity come from that. You'll see, um, hypothyroidism. I mean, any, anytime you diet, your body's natural response to that, the thyroid down regulates going back to the metabolism, half of things that you talked about, um, as far as like what once was a caloric deficit. Now, now it's not, there's nothing wrong with you. It's just your, that's your body's natural response. You've just been dieting for too long. Now your metabolic rates lowered because your body its job is just to survive. Your body's job is not to lose body fat. So if you eat these low calories for that long, your body starts to go into this survival mode to where it's going to downregulate that metabolic rate. And that, then as you start to reverse out of that, let's say you work down to 1,300 calories, then you bump it up to 16. Now, all of a sudden, you're in a surplus where before 22, 2,300 calories was your surplus. So it's, you know, it's, it's your body's natural response to what you've been doing for a long period of time. I always say, too, how you're responding right now, a lot of times isn't necessarily what you're doing currently. It's what you did six months before that. It's what you did a year prior to that, leading up to that deficit or leading up to that, you know, surplus phase that you're going into. Yeah, it's there's a latent impact from the actions that we take. Yes. You know, there's yeah. so much of a latent impact. Um, I, I've heard this in business. It's like well, the business you have right now is based on the decisions and the operating system you had X, Y, and Z months or years ago, right? And very much the same is true with fitness. And I think one battle from a coaching perspective is sometimes people, they sign up for coaching, they're excited and they want to see this immediate result. When a lot of times to get the result that they ultimately want, it's like there's remedial work that has to be done to get back to a baseline point. Um, because you say something that, that really stands out to me and it's, you can't heal in the same way that made you sick. Yes. Yep. Right. And uh, some of that too comes from the environmental factors. It's like you have, you get a client that comes in and they have all these GI issues. Maybe they have PCOS. Again, I'm just throwing out examples. They have something from a functional perspective that needs fixed before their physique is going to improve. 
when they come in, we really dig into the history of when did this start? What triggered that? Because if this happened, we talked about stress-induced like GI issues and stress-induced, you know, autoimmunity. When this got triggered, what was your environment? Were you in a toxic relationship? Were you surrounded by people who were just, you know, very toxic on your life? Were you working a job that you hated and working for someone who just made your life miserable? You can take all the supplements that you want. You can be doing all the right things from a nutrition perspective. If you still have that same exact environment and you're staying still saying in that same mental state, kind of going back to have we rewired that subconscious and the way that we respond to stress? Has our stress resiliency improved? If not, I don't care how many supplements you take, you're still in that same environment that caused those issues to begin with, you're gonna have a really hard time coming out of it until you can do that deep inner work from a mental, um, you know, stress perspective. Do you feel like when you have somebody who says, I feel like I'm trying everything, I'm eating the right foods, I'm eating what should be a calorie deficit, I'm training hard, but it's not working for me. Do you think that is often the case? Let's say, I mean, taking aside the fact that they're actually doing these things as consistently as they should be, say mm -hmm. 85, 90% of the time. Do you think that's often the case? As far as their environment? Yeah. I think I'll say stress is probably the biggest silent killer in most physiques and the biggest silent killer in terms of illness as well. Now for a prolonged period of time, like, our bodies are, they are resilient. They can handle the acute stress. But when it turns into chronic stress for years upon years upon years, that's when it starts to become an issue. So 100%. Absolutely. Yeah. So when you're looking at stuff like this, do you often order labs? Are you looking at blood work? Like what type of, type of metrics are you looking at when somebody's in this scenario? Yeah, when we start, we don't necessarily require any testing. Um, a lot of times we can, you know, on our intake form too, we're going to ask detailed questions about their digestion, about their sleep, about their stress, you know, what kind of like symptoms are they dealing with and what, what they're currently doing. So a lot of times we'll put something in place based off of that. And then that initial phase will almost act as a little bit of a litmus test for us in terms of like, do we need to do labs? Do we need to actually look deeper into the GI? Do we need to do maybe like a Dutch test to look at your adrenal pattern? Where do we need to go? Because a lot of times, like maybe what you have to actually address first might not pop up on serum lab work. And I will say like the GI issues, those have to get corrected before anything else. Because you could have GI issues thyroid issues, hormone issues, you could have all these things coming in with all of the above. We can't try to work those separately because everything is going to work synergistically. So it's like we, we want to go at the biggest domino first. So what's going to be the biggest domino in that case? A lot of times it's the GI because again, like thyroid conversion happens in the gut. Hormones metabolize, the gut's going to affect neurotransmitters. So like mood, that's usually the biggest domino. So if there is a gut issue, we don't want to miss that. So again, as far as what testing, it's going to depend on how they start to respond as we kind of get going. But, you know, and some people might not need, need any testing. Sometimes you'll put something in place and it's just like, wow, this just clicks for this individual. So that's kind of my thought process on that. Yeah, that totally makes sense. And so from a holistic perspective, let's say somebody comes back, you know, maybe some gut dysfunction going on. What are some of the things that you would look at to do nutritionally uh -huh. first? before maybe digging even deeper into more more testing? Like what type of food recommendations would you make? Any preparation styles that tend to lead to better gut health and function? So pulling out common triggers that, you know, are just kind of general, dairy, gluten, wheat, soy, corn, 
that's kind of that initial phase that I'll do. I like to play that subtraction game before I start adding anything. Like, let's see what we can take out of what you're currently doing and see what improvements, you know, that we can make. Typically go like on the lower FODMAP, maybe even pull fiber down a little bit if they're eating like a crazy amount, causing some constipation, maybe some loose stool. So I'll always start there with the absolute basics. And then again, too, it's like kind of some of the other biomarkers that we talked about are going to feed into digestion. Like, are you sleeping bad? Because if you are, digestion's not going to be good. You know, is your stress really high because if it is digestion's not going to be good so kind of unraveling that entire picture before i even jump into like hey let's do this testing because it's one thing a good coach for one it's expensive it's going to be expensive to work with someone who is you know has a good reputation we don't want to have someone come in the door and be like throw all these supplements on them throw all these tests on them like let's start really basic let's look at what you're currently doing how can we improve that let's look at your current lifestyle is there room for improvement probably so and then if we're still having those issues, then we may ask for some additional tests. I love that approach because so many people are constantly busy and they have many things on their plate and adding more things generally just adds more stress, more decision-making and more variables, which conversely make it harder to actually implement any of them. And so that's one of the tough things. It's, hey, we actually need to pull you back and get a little bit of data first before we can make the best objective decision-making going forward, You know, not just throw on a bunch of different supplements and, and some protocol without really knowing if it's going to work for you. I love that. I love yeah. that. Something else too, so, that we can kind of piggyback off of that, especially if they're a former athlete or, you know, someone who just likes to work really hard in the gym. And we talked about like training is a stressor, you know, stress is stress at the end of the day. And if someone has all of these issues, but they're training five, six days a week, doing 45 minutes of cardio every day, I'm starting there. They and they may not they might not love that idea, but when they start, like we may pull training down to two or three times a week with a half body split, so a lot less volume. We may take their car their in their stairmaster cardio into like, hey, just go on a leisure walk outside. Where can I as a coach pull back on your stress? What can I um, manage? You know, I can't manage your family life. I can't do any of that. But what I can manage is the training component. Like how can I pull out as much stress as I possibly can? And then try to see where these symptoms start to trend from there. I love that. I love that approach. And I think that's a natural segue into some of the training points. And I think this is something you and I were discussing a little bit over the last, say, week and a half. And uh, something I was discussing with somebody else lately. There's obviously been more of a trend towards low volume training. And I think part of that is people are getting better at actually training with enough intensity. Yes. <laughs> and that's a good thing, right? Because like when I'm doing a, when I'm doing a set, say if I have two work sets in a workout, I might have three or four ramp up sets. So to actually get to a load, that's going to elicit the training response we're looking for. It's a really difficult concept, I think for a lot of people to understand, but like, let's say we have somebody who's got good baseline health and what they're focused on doing is they just want to build the muscle. They want to look as great naked as they can while optimizing their health and performance say 30, 35 year old man, like where would you begin on the training component? As far as you mean volume? Training volume, um, frequency, we can look at the variables one by one. Let's imagine we've got a case study for somebody who's similar to me. It kind of, kind of going back to what you said, how advanced are they? You know, can they send me videos? If I, if they send me training videos and they're, they've been training for a long period of time, they're getting the absolute most out of every single rep. They're treating it like, you know, like it's my last rep. Could probably get away with starting pretty low volume kind of like you said like i like that low volume approach because more isn't always better like better is better so if you're training really well we can probably get away with just a couple working sets per exercise and then, and then on the back end of that like recovery is so much more efficient like you know we're not growing muscle tissue when we're in the gym training we're growing muscle tissue 
from what we can recover from. So if I have all this, you know, we could call it junk volume. It's kind of that word that everyone throws around. We're doing five, six sets of every movement, but we're not, we're not even really getting to that like mechanical failure area. Are we really even eliciting much growth or are we just kind of beating ourselves up and not allowing for as much recovery? So when I look at volume, I'm looking at how advanced that person is for sure. And then if, if someone comes in and they're not very advanced, what I'll typically do is start them out more so of like a half body split environment because now they're training those muscle groups a lot more frequently. They're getting more practice. Practice makes perfect, right? So they're practicing more often. And then once we have those exercises down to a T, maybe we move to a third body split or a fourth body split, or you know maybe they have a muscle group that wants to come up. We can prioritize that. And that's when I'll start titrating the volume a little bit, you know, a little bit lower. That makes sense. And so like for the, let's, again, it's always tough because as coaches, we're going to be like, well, it depends based on this individual. <laughs> Would you say for the vast majority of people, they tend to get better results if they're training a muscle multiple times throughout the week versus kind of the classic body part split. Like, hey, we're just hitting chest on Monday and we might have like, we might touch chest a little bit on like a shoulder day on Thursday or Friday. But generally speaking, it's going to be more of a shoulder focus. Do you tend to find like a more optimal frequency for training particular muscle groups? I have found that people will tend to respond a little bit more efficient with a little bit more frequency to where, you know, if we're doing just a chest day, imagine how high that volume is going to be on that day. So we're, we're just training chest. So let's say like you get a program from someone and it's just like chest only. You're probably going to do like five, six different chest movements because that's all you're training. And then volume starts to add up. And again, it's like, are we going to be able to recover from that? So I'm, I'm a big fan of a little bit more frequency with lower end volume, if we can get away with it. But then again, you know, if I had to give one answer, that would be it. But it is kind of like it, it depends because the longer you work with people too, you may find this one person just responds to a little bit more volume. So maybe you do kind of run that bro split in a sense. But generally speaking, I have found a little bit more frequency usually works better. Yeah, I found something similar. Again, there's the individual component, but like, what I find is, hey, if we can break up that volume and space it out over two or even three training sessions throughout the week, first, we're probably going to be training some similar movement patterns pretty consistently. So from like a neurological programming component, we're going to get a little bit better there. Um, we're going to improve our muscle fiber recruitment. If we're going heavy, maybe better fast twitch, you know, motor unit, stuff like that. Like that's going to be excellent. And the total volume for the week might actually hit, you know, whatever threshold we're looking for. But because it's broken up and we have some recovery between it and considering stress and all these other factors that are going on, notice better strength gains, which often precedes the ability to actually push the intensity high enough, you know, within those training sets to get better growth. And so, yeah, I'm right uh, there with I you. Think, I agree. Yeah. It's so interesting because again, we, we see these different trends in philosophical changes in the fitness industry just kind of runs through. But I think now as we continue to see more emphasis on recovery and people are coming a lot more knowledge on, you know, some of the tools we talked about before, like, you know, HRV, for example, how is this actually impacting me as a full organism? Not just how sore am I the next day? People are yes. coming so much more intelligent with this overall training approach. Weight training perspective, training muscle groups multiple times per week. It's going to vary per individual, but you know, ideally sometimes that frequency a little bit be a little bit higher and that's going to be a, an excellent foundation. What about the cardiovascular component? Like where do you start? Are you somebody that's like, hey, let's just focus on getting 10,000 steps a day and, and we go from there? Or is it like, I, I need everyone to do zone two cardio at least two or three days yeah. a week? Like what does that look like? So as far as the zone two cardio, I think it's important for everyone to bring in at least, you know, a couple times throughout the year. And the thing about that, as far as aerobic capacity, 
once you have it, you're, you're going to have it for a good amount of time. So it's like, you know, if, even if we, we run this, and that's one of those things too, if you're allocating more volume in a sense to zone two cardio, your, the aerobic system, you probably need to pull back a little bit on the training component. So, you know, we can't just have training through the roof and do all this cardio at the same time, going back to the stress conversation. We only have so much to recover from. So if I'm going to run that, you know, kind of phase of, hey, this is what we're doing. We're focused on the conditioning component. Maybe we have a health concern. We need to improve our aerobic system as a whole. I'm probably going to pull back on the training a little bit, kind of go to like what we were talking about, maybe a full body split a few times a week, maybe a half body split a few times a week. But you can run that for six, eight, 10 weeks, as long as you're doing it correctly and you you know, putting the effort in, getting the most out of it. And then you can back off for a good amount of time because again, your aerobic capacity is better. You're going to maintain that for a good duration of time before you got to bring it back. Like people just, they don't, they don't prioritize that, you know, especially, you know, sometimes in our, our environment, like people just want to lift weights all the time, even as a former competitor. And I'm guilty as hell of it too. They want to just lift and they don't want to take care of the aerobic stuff. And I think that's really important for health. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's been interesting as well because, you know, we see energy system experts like Joel Jameson do a great job of breaking down energy systems. My good friend, Jason Brown, does a great job talking about the importance of cardio and kind of his conjugate style training as well. I think it's something where kind of, as you mentioned, it, it takes me back to like the sport performance world where we'd have different phases, right? We'd have, you know, different cycles throughout the year. Like, hey, you know, this phase is power, this one's strength, this one's muscle, this one's going to be, you know, more in season, whatever it is. And when you cycle your training while adapting some of these variables, like the physiological quality that you're training can carry over and improve that next one. And cardio is one of those big examples. Even, you know, speaking personally, like with my programming right now, like we've ramped up my cardio, some of these components directly looking at it, my resting heart rate's like 41, right? And like... <laughs> <laughs> Which, and I'm not a guy who does a lot of cardio, but like yeah. I've built like it up to certain points pretty well. Yep. And even when my cardio is like not really high, even if we're just doing walking, it might go up to like 50, which is still, again, really good. I'm very fortunate for that. But it just kind of highlights like when you keep these different parameters in and ratchet them up, like you can see a pretty definitive change in something like the overall, you know, pretty short time period, too. Yeah. And, and, and that's, that's one of the beautiful things. Yeah. And that's one of those things too. If you have someone who's very data driven, that's a really good environment where you'll see progress visually because you can track that heart rate. What intensity am I having to use to get that heart rate up to that 140, 150, whatever we're shooting for? You should eventually have to raise that intensity to reach that same heart rate. And you will. Again, if you're doing it right, you'll see that progress pretty dang fast. Yeah. And let's talk about even the nutrient partitioning component of it, right? Because we get a lot of people who will primarily focus on on training, but like, or on lifting weights. And let's say you have somebody who's lifting weights, but they don't really emphasize cardio. And they're trying to, again, have kind of this gradual recomposition of building lean muscle, losing body fat. What importance will that cardiovascular training play and how effective their nutrition is? Not even from a calories in, calories out perspective, but mm -hmm. from just overall efficiency. I mean, as far as like, you'll have some people who just kind of sit all day. Maybe that's maybe that's their job. They sit at a computer all day. You will find if they're they're eating quite a bit of food, they're in this surplus. They're going to have a much harder time stabilizing those blood sugars versus someone who, and this is kind of even outside of like pushing zone two cardio and like really pressing the aerobic system. But you're going to find someone who even gets out and goes on a 10, 15 minute walk after they eat. Their sugar levels are going to stabilize so much more efficiently. So I think there's a lot 
to be said about just getting up and just movement as a whole is going to help stabilize those sugars. Yeah, I think all that stuff is so important. Um, again, calories in, calories out, like that stuff definitely matters from it. Oh, yeah. There are so many other metrics, so many things that happen like at a cellular level through our training that I think are more important than simply looking at exercise through the lens of how many calories is this burning directly? For example, like a pound of muscle tissue, it increases caloric expenditure by 12 calories a day, whatever it is. I don't even know how they how they fucking measure that. Anyway, that's another story altogether. But like what's hard to quantify, and I get a lot of clients who really want to know the why and like understand like, well, the research says this, like what does this actually mean in, in a practical sense? Because they need to logically put it together. Like what are some of the other benefits directly of resistance training? Like what does it do even at like a cellular level? What are different things that it could do for, for long-term health and the way that your body takes the foods that you're using, breaking it down and makes you a healthier, more jacked human being? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think building muscle tissue probably the best thing that you can do for your metabolism as a whole because like you were you're going to you're going to have more energy expenditure the more muscle tissue that you have if you're someone who's kind of like in that skinny fat environment you're gonna have a really hard time partitioning nutrients and your metabolic rate is probably going to be really low um i think too like it it has a big it has a big impact on just your overall mood you know, throughout the day, neurotransmitters, your hormones, it plays such a big role in that your sex drive, like, you know, your quality of life as a whole. man, I think there's there's so many benefits there. Yeah. And, and we can go down rabbit holes with that, too. It's like, hey, if we're talking about neurotransmitters, we can look at, okay, if we have a healthy gut environment, that's going to be good supporting more neurotransmitters, exercise is going to support that as well. There's a relationship between dopamine and testosterone levels, a relationship between yes. testosterone levels and our ability to lose body fat, building muscle. So there's so many complex intricacies throughout the body, which makes it important to be able to sometimes pull away from like just what the data says and focus on the process itself, understanding that all kinds of these environments are going to be improved at the same time that ultimately leads you towards a goal that you're looking for. Another thing too that I wanted to mention about the uh, the aerobic system. So even if you have that athlete who is mainly you know wanting to resistance train, and they they may be a little bit skeptical or give you a little bit of pushback and say, hey, I really really don't know how I feel about going through this aerobic phase and pulling back on some of the train. Let's take just a brutal set of like Bulgarian split squats for example. I mean, you know how you feel after that. You're out of breath. You're gassed. You just need to sit down, and usually that set stops because you're out of breath. It's usually not your glutes or your quads. It's usually because you can't breathe. So taking that aerobic phase and then coming back to an, a hypertrophy phase, imagine how much more you're going to be able to get out of that Bulgarian split squat if you can breathe more efficiently, if your aerobic system's a lot healthier. So there's a lot of kind of drawback to, yes, it kind of sucks. I'm pulling out of hypertrophy for this, but on the flip side, going back into it, I'm probably going to recover a lot more efficiently and I'm probably going to be able to get more out of that next training phase. Yeah, it builds that work capacity. It lets you push everything yeah. that much harder. Yeah. I love that. Okay, so we've talked about some baseline health components, digestive health training. From a nutrition perspective, you've been a competitor yourself. You've worked with many as well. What do you find to be an ideal, even meal frequency? Because that's something that's a very hotly debated topic. We've seen trends with intermittent fasting. We've seen you know everything from one meal a day to if we want to look back, six, seven, eight meals a day. Like, Where do you stand? I'm more of like that four, like four meals a day is pretty, pretty good for me. That's typically what I'll use. You'll have someone who just has a really long day though. And they may feel a little bit like they're just awake for a long period of time. They meal, they may feel better off five, but I I'm right around that four, that four mark, you know, we're eating every somewhere between like every three to five hours or so is usually kind of a sweet spot for most people. Yeah. And with that, are you looking at 
consistent protein intake with each meal? Is it front loaded, back loaded? I mean, I've seen research where it's like, hey, you know, your body actually tends to do better in terms of protein absorption and utilization when the amounts are fairly similar throughout the day. Yep. That's exactly what I do. I'll take whatever I'm going to give them total protein wise and just evenly spread that throughout the day. Now we may like talking about other macronutrients, maybe we prioritize carbohydrates a little bit more heavy around their workout, but protein is usually just pretty balanced across the board. Yeah. And so what are some of the benefits of that, even from a hunger and, and regulation component? I think just the satiety component. I mean, protein is, it's going to keep you full for longer, especially if you're in a deficit. So, you know, just having that balance throughout the day, I think is really important. And too, like, again, because it is such a high satiety, someone's cramming a bunch of protein in in one meal, they're probably going to be extremely full from a digestion perspective. We know too, stomach acid plays such a big role in digesting protein. So someone's a little bit lower stomach acid, stress washes out stomach acid. So you take someone who's really stressed out, and most people are these days, I'm eating a ton of protein in one meal. How well am I really going to break that down? Protein is probably the hardest macro to break down in general. Yeah, definitely. And what we thermic effect is, or I think we burn 30% of the calories that we actually consume via protein simply by breaking down that yep. chunk of steak into usable amino acids. Like that's, that's incredible and ties back to the early discussion on gut health. Mm-hmm. Now, when you're looking at like say peri-workout nutrition, what do you typically recommend? Do you have somebody having a meal right before? Are they drinking anything in particular during anything immediately after? Yeah, I usually, I usually tell people at least wait, you know, 90 minutes is kind of general. Even if you need to wait a little bit longer, make sure there's, there's not food sitting in your stomach when you're, when you're training. So, you know, 90 minutes is kind of a general approach. You know, I'll add in some intro workout carbs for, for some people, if I think they need it from a performance perspective, you know, cyclic dextrin is good. I'll even have people, some people do Gatorade. I'll even have some people do just honey, you know, mix some honey in their water, just something that's going to digest really fast and you can utilize for energy right away. Yeah. And so what are the benefits of directly having some fuel in your system? Because, you know, you see a lot of low carb stuff, you see a lot of fasting. And again, some of these things can have, I think, a, a short-term efficacy to, yep. you know, fix some issues. But I see a lot of people run into issues. They fall in love with, you know, say they did 16-8 intermittent fasting, lost a bunch of weight, and they want to stick with it forever. But what happens to like the quality of the training and even beyond the quality of the training itself, like what happens within the body when we're maybe training, pushing the envelope in a high stress environment without a proper feeding beforehand. Yeah, I, as far as the intro workout, I, that's an environment too. If someone's in a surplus, I like using that more because it may be just an easy way to get more carbohydrates in throughout the day, especially if they're eating a lot of food. In a deficit, you may have someone who'd be like, I would rather eat food than drink a freaking pre-workout carb drink. And you know, I, I don't blame them. From a performance perspective, I mean, it's just additional fuel. I mean, it's additional gas to the fire during that training session that you're going to be able to utilize again right away. So um, those are kind of the benefits that I lean to when I probably would use it versus when I would not. Again, a deficit, I usually don't lean towards that intra drink just because someone's probably hungry throughout the day and would just rather eat food. I can totally relate to that. <laughs> I totally I'm the same to way, that. man. If I'm in a deficit and I'm starving, I don't care about an intra workout drink. <laughs> I don't even care about protein shakes. I'm like, you know, give me some Give me no, something no. else. No. You know? no. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so building on that aspect, like do you find do people need to you think really jump in and have that protein shake or protein source directly after the workout? Do you think it's better to wait a little bit, specifically if they've had intro workout carbs? Because obviously it's a stressful environment when we're training hard. Is the body really in an ideal state to jump directly from that hard training session into optimizing digestion and breaking down protein, which is notoriously hard for us to break down? 
Yep. I always just recommend just wait until your heart rates calm down. Wait until you're in this calm parasympathetic state. If you're still in this high wired sympathetic dominant state, stressed out state from the training session, digestion is going to be really hindered. You're probably not going to break down that food, you know, very efficiently or shuttle those nutrients where they need to go. The glucose, glucose is going to be high if cortisol is high. So it's like if we're coming into that post-workout meal and glucose is still really high from that training session, why do I want to shovel a bunch of carbs into my system right now or a bunch of food into my system? So I don't I don't necessarily have like an exact time frame with that. I always just tell people like, hey, don't be trying to eat on your way home from the gym because of your anabolic window. You know, wait till you get home, wait till you're sitting down, calm down, and you know, you're going to be fine. Wait till, you know, you can kind of gauge it too. Is my heart rate still up? You know, how am I feeling in that regard? So you're saying when I finish a leg press, I don't have to sprint over <laughs> to the water, elbow Sally out of the way and fill up that protein shake. And you see some crazy stuff. I'll see people eating like Pop Tarts mid set. It's it's crazy out there. <laughs> it is wild. It is wild. It's probably probably a good supplement angle though. Like, hey, anabolic Pop Tarts. You can eat these while you're supine <laughs> on the leg press. Maybe. <laughs> so the last frontier that we haven't really covered yet is is sleep. And I feel like sleep is the thing that ties in all of these components together. And it's something that the vast majority of people tend to put on the back burner, even if they hear Matthew Walker on Joe Rogan and then pick up a book or, or whatever's going on in terms of the importance of sleep. What does this tie together? Like from a hormonal perspective, where do you put sleep? Obviously, all these things are, core, are are connected. But like if you had a hierarchy of like sleep, nutrition, training, where would that be for you? Right. Uh, right at the very top. Right at the very more important than nutrition, even probably. I mean, it's right up there with stress. But of course, they tie in together if we don't have. And that's that's one of the I don't want to label that like one, two, three, four. But yeah. that's one of the things that I'm working on with individuals than your peri-workout nutrition. You know, all those advanced things. If we don't have that foundation, we don't we don't have anything. So that's that's I mean, that's right up there at the very, very tip top. Yeah. And so like what type of things do you focus on first with sleep? You've got somebody say, again, 30, maybe they got young kids. They have you know a lot going on in terms of professional stress. Maybe they just got a promotion. So they have a lot more stuff on their plate directly. How do you help them prioritize quality sleep when potentially getting eight, nine hours isn't always going to be in the books? Yep. So setting your, our bodies are not wired to, and this is something I have to kind of check myself on at times too. Our bodies are not wired. I'm just going to use a personal example to be sitting here on my laptop until midnight and then walk directly in my room and go to sleep. It's not going to work. You know, there's nothing wrong with you. It's just, you're not setting your sleep hygiene sucks. A lot that I talk with the clients, it's like, how can we set ourselves up to get that quality of sleep? And I want you to take that just as important as your training session the next day. Like how, you know, you're all worried about how can I make my performance this good? Well, how can we set you up to sleep? And, you know, blue light blocking glasses, if you work from a computer, if you're watching TV, you know, after the sun goes down, those are really efficient. They're going to block 90, order the orange ones. They're not, you know, they're not sexy by any means, but the the clear ones aren't going to do, aren't going to do very well. That blue light that's coming in is going to de deplete our ability to make natural melatonin. So melatonin's low, we're probably not going to sleep very well. So those glasses really help me personally. Staying away from light screens and all that, that's kind of one of those cases, like if you have to watch a screen for work or whatever it is, get those glasses. Um, a cold room, make sure your room's really cold. You know, do something too, maybe an Epsom salt bath or, you know, read 10 pages out of a book. Like set yourself up in an environment to get quality sleep. And it may take an hour, maybe the last two hours of your day, but I think in this fast-paced environment that we're in nowadays, people just, they think that we're just going to shut down and go to directly to sleep after a long, stress stressful day. And that's just not, that's not going to be the case. Yeah. You know, this actually makes me think of, uh, you know, my dad growing up, 
My dad's an engineer and most jobs that he had, we always seem to be seem to live at least like 30 to 30 minutes to an hour away. And I was talking with him later on, you know, once I'm out of the house, I'm like, well, why do you always work so far away from the house? And he's like, part of it was being able to have a time to decompress after and be able to transition from a highly analytical job and be able to then go home and be a dad, be able to focus on these different things. Um, And now, yeah, but even now as like, as a father, I can relate to that a lot where it's like, I need a little bit of a buffer time from being executive function, coaching all of this stuff all day, you know, for 12 plus hours to decompress. How can I be a good dad? How can I be a good husband? How can I do some of these? Right. And then even from that point, it can be, you know, I've, I've got a toddler. So like, shit, we just had a meltdown. How do we go from meltdown to decompress again, to actually being able to go to sleep and not have sky high stress and cortisol and all these components. And so optimizing sleep, I just find it be so important where people look, what supplements can I take? What testosterone booster can I have? You know, all these yeah. different components. And ultimately, you know, people will blast all kinds of money on all these other, you know, supplements and kind of gimmicks, whatever it is, before they take care of the foundational thing that's actually proven to optimize insulin sensitivity, reduce cortisol, optimize testosterone levels, help you get stronger, improve reaction timing across the board. And so that's yep. a foundational thing above all. It's, it's one of those things too, that people probably just don't want to hear. I think, you know, they probably know that's an issue, but they're looking for that next shiny thing that's just going to override that sleep. And unfortunately, you're not going to out supplement, you're not going to out diet chronic stress, you know, low levels of sleep for a long period of time. There's just simply no way around it. Something else that could help too is kind of getting away from, yes, you know, the before bed stuff is really important. But on the flip side of that, like what are we doing first thing in the morning to actually set that circadian rhythm? So I'll have a lot of people go outside, get their feet in the grass, like do some grounding or just simply go on a walk, get some sun in your face to set that circadian rhythm that will actually on the backside help with sleep too. Yeah. Hey, small hinges swing big doors. One final thing on sleep and you can speak to this better than most. You've been traveling to Saudi quite a bit, Saudi Arabia. How do you handle jet lag? How do you handle your training? You know, when you're dealing with that significant time change and you're making that trip quite frequently as well, aren't you? Yeah. So it's every other month. I'm there for one month. I'm home for one month, man. It's still tricky. I've got it down pretty good at this point. What I typically do is I try to stay on United States time when I'm over there. The time the time difference is about nine hours, so I'll be I'm nine hours ahead in Saudi. But I'll typically you know go to bed around four a.m. or so Saudi time. So that's about seven to eight eight p.m. in the U.S. And I try to stay on that time for one. All my clients are on that schedule, so it just makes life a little bit easier for everybody. But training wise. It's a really good question because my training absolutely gets pulled down when I'm over there. The, the my recovery is not as good. You know, I'm, I'm for one, yes, I'm sleeping in a new bed, but I'm also on the other side of the world. My recovery is just not good. So I'll go from training, you know, five times a week to I'll kind of go back to that sometimes half body split a few times a week just to stay because you know being we have to have realistic expectations. I'm probably not going to make a lot of progress when I'm in Saudi. I kind of set myself up to progress the months that I'm back home. So when I'm in Saudi, I just want to maintain as much tissue as I want. I don't want to move backwards, but I'm more so prioritizing that sleep component, prioritizing that stress uh, management component. That way, when I do come back home, I'm not starting from a, you know, a, a negative place from where I was. Yeah, it's a powerful insight. Kind of go with the flow a little bit and like pull back when it's needed and then yeah. ramp things up when things are a little bit more solidified instead of trying to hold constant across the board, which might have some detriments. Blake, oh. this was incredibly insightful. Thank you so much for being here. Where can we find out more about you? Yeah, my Instagram is at Blake West 22.
Awesome. And so that we're, if we've got any questions, we should fire over to you. If we have any coaching inquiries, that's the spot. Absolutely. Yep, absolutely. Just shoot me a DM and I'd be glad to uh, have a conversation with you guys. Awesome. Thank you, brother. All right, man. Thank you. Hey, it's Eric here again. Now, there are three ways that I can help you look great naked. Number one, if you want to grab a free copy of the Look Great Naked Protocol to help you lose body fat without counting calories, then go to bachperformance.com backslash free training. Number two, if you're a busy guy looking to build muscle, then I recommend checking out our Minimalist Muscle Blitz, which has helped over 1,000 men build muscle without living in the gym. Just go to minimalistmuscleblitz.com. The link will also be available in the show notes. Or number three, and last, if you want to work with me directly and get the best results possible, apply at bachperformance.com backslash coaching to look great naked without living in the gym. Until next time, my friend, 